Assalamu alaikum everybody. Bismillah ar-Rahman ar-Rahim. Welcome to another amazing Saturday session. Well, we're, we are working on day three of Surah al-Tawbah. Um, as usual, I have to call attention to yesterday's incredible khutbah. The uh, title is called um, Quran is in the details, justice before turning to all mosques. And um, that's based on this um, really incredible discussion of one of the verses in Surah al-Anfal where um, you know, the Quran tells us that we have to focus on the foundation of justice before turning to all mosques, not just mosques that, not just Mecca, not just any one particular mosque, but all mosques, which is a really fascinating um, point of reflection. And Sheikh um, you know, builds on this idea of justice and talks about obviously the things that are happening around the world, especially in Iran with the women, and the, um, starts there by talking about you know, again, this idea of women being coerced, um, well, and of course all the women uh, who have now, you know, died as a result of the, the so-called morality police um, under horrific circumstances. Um, and the notion that, you know, you, the lesson that you cannot force women to conform to standards of modesty that they don't believe in, that the idea of coercion is obviously so counter to the notion of justice um, and the, the idea of even reminding us that in the time of the Prophet, peace be upon him in Mecca, you know, hypocrites were there when, you know, when the message began, when the Prophet left the planet, the Prophet never used coercion, never imprisoned anyone, never killed anyone, um, but relied on persuasion. And, you know, this important question that Sheikh asked, how many uncovered heads are equal to one death, one life? And he, you know, clearly points out that every single woman in, you know, in Iran, if all of their heads were uncovered, that would still not be worth the, the death or the killing of one life, which I thought was extremely powerful. Um, and, you know, the, it just reminded me um, that I think what really sets apart what we learn here from Sheikh through the khutbahs, through the halakas, is this idea of taking the Quran so seriously and this title of the, you know, the, the Quran is in the details. I mean, we hear a lot of the same verses over and over again. People think that they know what the Quran has to say or think, you know, that the Quran is maybe medieval and doesn't have much to say. But when you come to a khutbah like this and, and Sheikh can say, look at this one verse and how, you know, God is very precise in saying all mosques, you know, you have to have justice in your heart before turning to all mosques. And I've never heard anyone go to that level of detail in really understanding what does the Quran have to say, number one, and then number two, like really reflect on what does that mean? And you know, when he closes the khutbah and he says, you know, remember that wherever Allah's name is raised um, in prayer or in dhikr, therein is Allah's mosque or Allah's masjid. So wherever that takes place and that God expects justice and dhikr to flood the world. And so when you start thinking about that, yeah, where is all the Where are all the masjids? What, what are all the mosques? And what does God really expect from us? And this arises from taking God's word seriously, taking every single detail of the Quran seriously, and really reflecting on it. And we see how this plays out in, you know, the halakas here and understanding the Quran and, you know, delving deep into these details. And that's where I feel like we get so much more than we learn anywhere else um, with people's engagement with the Quran. I mean, it comes from Sheikh's obsessive, you know, um, obsession with the Quran and taking God seriously. And so, um, alhamdulillah, this is something that, 
it's a methodology that he has passed on to us and you know it's like raising that bar of expectation it's like this is the standard we have to take the Quran this seriously when we see our scholars take it this seriously and and that's where we learn so much so alhamdulillah um, thank you Sheikh for that um, and I also wanted to say you know it's part of our process as I've mentioned before is you know as we go through you know and listen to the khutbahs you know like we a lot of times have several different engagements with the khutbah so first we sit and we hear it um, you know on Friday um, at, at Juma um, but then alhamdulillah you know several of us have the opportunity to re-engage these words so we we send them to the transcription you know team the professional transcribers it comes back several of us go through it clean it up and again we engage with what did Sheikh say what were the meanings what you know what is it that he pointed out for us and then it shows up in the weekly summary so if you've subscribed to our weekly summary you get like a really good summary of what was said and then as we work on it even more and prepare it for um, Prophet's Pulpit, volume one, two, three, four, whatever it might show up in, you know, again, we have a very, very detailed engagement with these words. Um, and it hits you differently every single time. There's so much learning and so much reflection. And I feel like there's such a power in hearing it, reading it, seeing it, engaging it. And I hope that um, people will have an opportunity to really, you know, take the time. If you don't have, a, a, you know, time to watch it on Friday, to you know, read it in the weekly email. If you don't have time to do that, then get a copy of the Prophet's pulpit and read it because it's a very different thing to actually have it in your hands. And with that, I want to also report on the amazing um, progress that we're making on the Share with a Friend campaign. Um, and getting copies of the Prophet's pulpit out into the world. Um, first, I have to just thank with all of my heart this most incredible donor who basically fell in love with this book and said you know what I am praying to Allah that I can support this you know from now until the time I leave this planet I want to give you you know a, a monthly amount I want to get this book into the hands of every single Muslim and it started out with an idea of well maybe you know I, every month I could send you the name of a mosque and you guys could send it there you know and send a box and we thought well I don't know if that's a really smart way to do it because you know if any masjid in America receives a box of books you have no idea who's gonna you know receive it what they're gonna do with it if it's just gonna get you know tossed out you know what is this so you know then we started thinking strategically about okay how do we get this book into the hands of you know people who would be interested in reading it people who would be open to this idea and meanwhile you know it people were starting to talk about this book have it you know having read it People had said, you know, this is the only book that I can actually share with non-Muslim friends, that it's extremely powerful, um, that, you know, I've never seen anything like this, that it's not so difficult to read, that it's like, you know, it just touches you, um, it grabs your heart, grabs your intellect. It's a really special book, and it's, you know, as you know, it's 22 of these khutbahs um, transformed and edited um, by Joe um, into, you know, he's done an incredible job in making these really powerful essays. Um, and you know um so word started to spread and through this you know share with a, a friend campaign we got names um people shared it on um, instagram we got a big um you know like a bunch of people who wanted it um people internationally who can't get it there in their country asked if they could also get it and the donor absolutely you know very graciously said absolutely we'll pay for shipping for it to go out internationally so we've sent hundreds of books out internationally we sent a huge box to our group of friends in australia some people have seen you know like a, a picture of this book club in australia that read reasoning with god well they just got their shipment of the prophet's pulpit and they just sent me back a beautiful picture that you know people holding it up again so it's making its way around and i'm so 
excited because you know this book has the ability to transform and another thing is we just got an okay that one of the islamic schools in southern california is also going to accept a gift where we're sending copies to all of the teachers so you know our hope is then that this can also be taught to you know school-aged children who you know can be armed with knowledge and armed with confidence for being Muslim and being a social justice oriented Muslim before they head off to college and start getting hit with the Islamophobic messages that cause so much doubt. So I want to invite people, you know, if you're if you're watching this, if you yourself don't have a copy and you would like one, if you have friends that, you know, would like to have one, if you are connected with organizations, Islamic schools, journalists, anyone who you think might be open and interested in this and would like to check it out, we would absolutely be more than happy to send people a copy, two copies, several copies. Um, if people are international, we've also offered to say, you know, instead of just sending you one, if you'd like for us to send you two or more, because, you know, it's easier for us, obviously, to send more in a package. Um, it's cheaper. Um, and if you can share it with your friends internationally, you know, that works well for us. We're happy to do it. Um, inshallah, I hope that this is something that we can do to plant seeds for beautiful Islam to sprout around the world and make a change, inshallah. So I invite everyone to please be part of this, this project. Um, and you know, anyone who benefits any beautiful Islam that grows from this and you're part of that, you're connected to that, that is obviously paying it forward. That's part of your hasanat that, you know, on the final day when it really matters, that's when it will really make a difference. So inshallah, may, may this um, really be wonderful for our children, for future generations and so on. So thank you to everyone who's been involved. Thank you so much to Sheikh, who's given us the gift of this knowledge um, in so many different ways. And um, with that, I'm so excited to continue our journey with Surah Al-Tawbah, day three. Thank you so much for joining us. بسم الله توكلنا الله لا حول ولا قوة إلا بالله اللهم صل وسلم وبارك على محمد وعلى آله الأطهار الميامين وعلى أصحابه المختارين وعلى من تبعوا بإحسان إلى يوم الدين اللهم اشرح لي صدري ويسر لي أمري وحلل عقدة من لساني يحقه قولي يا رب العالمين So I think we left off um, with Ghazwat Hunayn, the Battle of Hunayn, and if you recall, as we said, that um, in this battle, Muslims approached the battle with a considerable amount of confidence because for the first time, uh, they, their numbers were exceeded the numbers of their opponents, the tribes of Hawazin and Thaqif. Uh, and, but indeed, they learned a tough lesson and because the battle uh, initially didn't go their way and in fact it looked like they're going to be routed and defeated but it was this group that persevered around the Prophet والسلام, uh, from the Muhajirin and the Ansar which uh, 
you know, numbers are tricky, but in some, you know, different sources have, have said different numbers, but basically most say around 130 muhajirin and about 60 of the Ansar. And by in doing so, the tide of the battle was turned and it did end with a victory for Muslims. But taking this lesson in the context of Surah At-Tawbah, after talking about the Battle of Hunayn, and after Allah explicitly saying that this is on this day, you relied on unjustified confidence. Now, the 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 lesson is that it is if you make if you rely on victory and loss just simply as a matter of rational calculations while you must prepare yourself and must take and as as i've emphasized repeatedly that the prophet himself um, was the best example of someone who took all rational precautions and took all rational measures to ensure victory in the battle. But as the balance of Surah At-Tawbah will focus on, it is the quality of Iman, it is your relationship with Allah, it is the authenticity of that relationship, and it is what the rest of Surah At-Tawbah will set out, will sort of explicate and lay out, uh, that really makes the difference, and that really is the determining factor whether you are, God is with you, or you proceed, although you think God is with you, but indeed God is not with you. Okay, so this is, and again, if you notice this, um, this theme that وَأَنزَلَ جُنُودًا لَمْ تَرَوْهَا that Allah sent literally literal is that Allah sent soldiers that you did not see but the, the even the classical commentators noted that it, it doesn't mean that these were soldiers in the human sense of actual people carrying weapons or angels carrying weapons and fighting uh, uh, in support of Muslims, that God's soldiers are, how do we put it? That God's soldiers are in everything including the mechanics of nature 
including what type of soil that you end up stepping on, including, you know, the movements of wind, uh, uh, including the 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 type of conviction that Allah puts in your heart, including indeed whether in battle you are obsessed with the idea, with the fear of death, or you put aside the fear of death. All of that is, is it's very myopic to imagine that God's soldiers are, you know, concrete angels engaging in combat. Um, and m most Quranic commentators anyway agree that regardless of who and what were God's soldiers, that they didn't actually engage in combat, but they supported Muslims, produced material conditions that uplifted the spirit of Muslims so that the, the uh, tide of the battle turned. Okay. Now, this, in the context of Surah At-Tawbah, this is a, a critical part of the message. Because in, if you take Surah At-Tawbah as a whole, in many ways, the balance of Surah At-Tawbah is telling, lays out in details precisely what type of maladies can produce the type of hubris, the type of overconfidence, or the type of lack of vision that could result in what looked like what looked like it was going to be a defeat. And as I noted last halakha, that Surah Tawbah marks an important historical turn. Because this is the surah where the haram is clearly claimed as an Islamic site. And in my opinion, as an exclusive Islamic site. And it is not, it is a reclamation of the status of the haram. Because the haram, as we said before, even the Arabs knew that the whole mythology of the Haram is that this is a site started by the Prophet Ibrahim and his son Ismail for worshiping the one and only God. And so you notice in 28, Ya وَإِنْ خِفْتُمْ عِيلَةً فَسَوْفَ يُغْرِكُمُ اللَّهِ بِالْفَضْلِهِ إِنْ شَاءَ إِنَّ اللَّهَ عَلِيمٌ حَكِيمٌ There is a discussion in Islamic source, sources about the meaning of this expression إِنَّمَا الْمُشْرِكُونَ النَّجَسِ which literally would translate as the non-believers 
I'm looking to see how Muhammad Asad translated. Uh, yeah, he just says, um, are nothing but impure. And yeah, so what's literally would translate as non-believers are impure. Uh, Nejas is anything that lacks purity. And the discussion in, in Islamic sources is whether they're impure by nature so that they are by their innate nature impure or impure by conduct. So because the non-believers could be in Geneva and not clean themselves or they don't follow the various other rules of Tahara. And surprisingly, the majority view in among the commentators is that they are not impure by nature, but impure by conduct. That their najasa is not thatiya. Um, and they will often... I mean, they, they cite different adilla uh, for that, uh, different um, evidence for that. And they say that the Prophet ate with them, uh, hosted them, mingled with them, uh, entertained them even in his mosque. Uh, so if, if they were naturally impure or innately impure, the Prophet would not have done that. Um, with the minority view is that the impurity is is now of course Sufi uh, comment, uh, commentaries understand that symbolically that the impurity is the impurity of the soul and and they go to great lengths to point out that what is worse than an impure non-believer is an impure believer. That a believer himself could become so infected by the demonic that their soul is no longer a pure soul. But and there is a very interesting debate, again, in the Islamic tradition, and, and a somewhat surprising debate, about whether this means that non-believers, including outright, um, um, you know, not people of the book, but uh, uh, people who uh, outright do not believe in God altogether, there is an interesting debate whether this exclusion means that they are excluded specifically from the haram around the, the Kaaba, or does this include the entire mosque in Mecca? Does this exclusion include the mosque in Medina? Does it include all mosques? So not just uh, the mosque in, in Mecca. And Um, the surprising thing is that in the classical tradition, you will find plenty of 
authorities that say that the exclusion is limited to the area of the haram, but it does not include all mosques, and it does not include the mosque in Medina, and it does not include even the mosque in Mecca itself. Uh, and they cite, again, various adilla that, that even after the revelation of this verse that the Prophet received uh, delegations of non-believers in the mosque in Medina that the Prophet received, والسلام, even there is a report that he received a delegation in the mosque in Mecca. Um, I personally think, and, and again, this is something that I, I was very interested in, so I wanted to know, um, I think that when Allah says that they are najas, that the impurity, I think, is a symbolic impurity. It, it is not, it, yes, they could be. It is possible that they could be impure physically. But even if they were pure physically, even if an unbeliever, and in my view, it in here it includes Christians and Jews, not just uh, atheists or or um, um, what do you call them? Um, agnostics. Uh, people who, agnostics. Agnostics and people who worship uh, idols and stuff like that. Pagans. Pagans, yeah. Uh, but because this is, it is. There is space that Allah exclusively claims for the true monotheism. And it is a space reserved for reasons that are beyond us, but it is a space reserved by Allah for Allah. And with all the incidents which are pointed to by various jurists as to the Prophet, well, the Prophet, you know, uh, 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 hosted a delegation of non-believers in this site and so on. They're in every one of these situations, number one, none of them include Included the mosque in Mecca, in my opinion. I think it's the 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 one report that included the mosque in Mecca is just historically not supported. And the 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 reports that tell us about hosting someone in 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 the mosque in Medina, remember that their living quarters were very close to literally attached to the prayer areas in Medina. And there's no evidence that in fact they were, they were in the prayer areas. But, in, but when you look at the details of the evidence themselves, in fact there, are, there is evidence that they were limited, they were told not to enter the areas where Muslims pray and limited to the areas, the social areas, if you will. Um, but when you look at 
what, what follows, I think that makes the meaning even clearer. Look. So, فَلَا يَقْرَبُ الْمَسْجِدِ الْحَرَامِ بَعْدَ عَمِيمِ هَذَا So, they are not to even come close to the Masjid al-Haram. It, it, it masjid, the entire masjid. It doesn't say just the Haram, but the entire masjid. And then goes on and says, وَإِنْ خِفْتُمْ عِيدًا فَسَوْفَ يُغْنِيكُمُ اللَّهُ مِنْ فَضْلِهِ So this, this point is quite critical. Because we read in numerous reports that when Muslims received this revelation, there, is, there was an immediate anxiety. And especially Mecca had just converted to Islam. I mean, so they, they have been Muslims in a very short while. And that is, well, now, if this is an exclusive Muslim site, this will mean a huge financial blow because the, the historical, cultural role that Mecca played in Arabia for all this time is now changed overnight. The indications of this is what? Is that Mecca is no longer going to be a site which non-Muslims can come along and you know, set up their trade or uh, visit casually. It, it is becoming an exclusively Muslim site and this is the reason for the anxiety about the financial losses. And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala responds to this by saying, which is the lesson that so many modern Muslims have a problem, have such a problem with. Uh, there are issues. When it comes to faith, there are issues where pragmatic, practical evaluations have no place. Is everything okay? And there are issues where these, where you must make a sacrifice on the basis of ideals, not on the basis of cost-benefit analysis. And I don't think you would, the anxiety would have been there, or the various reports which in which the the. Um, uh, the hypocrites respond and say, you know, how are we supposed to make a living now that this is where, if in fact the exclusion was not a sweeping one and an uncompromising one. Allahu Adam, but this is an exclusively Muslim in the sense of Islam, the religion of the Prophet Ibrahim, the true religion of all the prophets, and the people who understand this message, who embody this message, this site is the exclusive site for that conviction and that faith. Um, and this is why when, when um, 
when in the last Hajj, uh, there's uh, this Israeli guy who uh, filmed the Hajj live and broadcasted it on Israeli TV. And I heard when the the some you know on the mat when various Muslims were offended by that, and I quite, think quite rightly so. The response to this, well, you know, uh, this is a umrish siyasi that this is a political decision that. We, we should not talk about this because this is left to Wali al-Amr and, and if the Wali al-Amr decides as a matter of siyasa that um, a non-Muslim should be allowed to be present at Hajj and film Hajj and broadcast Hajj uh, on a non-Muslim TV channel, I think it's just completely... It's part of the trend of Muslims rendering everything in their religion, relegating all matters of ethics and morality and principles to their tyrannical, despotic rulers and leaving it... If you really look at the, the life of Muslims, you find that everything is relegated to the discretion of despotic rulers. And it is as if, you know, there are no boundaries, there are no, there is no sacred anything anymore. Um, I think, and I think the practice of Muslims, by the way, that's another thing, regardless of the jurisprudential ideas, the practice of Muslims over the centuries demonstrates that the idea that this is an exclusive sacred site is there is the correct one, because when it comes when it came to practice, that's what Muslims did, regardless of the juristic opinions that said well you know that it is that the exclusion only applies to the haram but not to the masjid or doesn't apply to the entire all of Mecca or you know and so on and so forth. I think that the exclusion applies at, at a minimum to the entire masjid. You know, all of Mecca is, or all of Hijaz is a more complicated question. Okay. I don't want to move on from this point without emphasizing it because I rarely hear Muslims pointing to the obvious, to, to the implications of what Surah At-Tawbah says about this. You are going to take a religious measure. That religious measure is going to result in severe financial sacrifices. And Allah comes and says, there are situations where principle trumps practicality. 
so much so that the severe financial sacrifices are completely justified. Especially modern Muslims so desperately need that lesson because the the sort of the, the, the new Islam, the, what I often call the Emirati Islam, is, no, you know, as when it comes to making money, that, that gets top billing. Um, pretty much anything in the faith can be compromised. And under the, the, the claim, oh, you, well, you know, you can't politicize religion. So because you can't politicize religion, so we, you know, we, we, we do business with uh, Hindu nationalists who are rabidly Islamophobic uh, because to make the financial sacrifices that are necessary, if we refuse to do business with them, that's politicizing religion. Same thing we saw when it came to the issue of the cartoons uh, that the French government sponsored. And cartoons that are pornographic, without question, obscene, degrading and humiliating and insulting towards the Prophet And the French government broadcasted these cartoons on on its government buildings. And the issue of boycotting French products, because none of the, the Muslim governments wanted to do anything about these cartoons. Uh, the boycotting of French products fizzled out to nothing. And it fizzled out to nothing because the religious leaders of today who are brainwashed in terms of their whole relationship to Islam as, as astounding as it sounds, but repeatedly I kept hearing these so-called religious leaders in the US and elsewhere, Australia and, and Europe and Muslim countries that say, well, you know, no, that's a political decision and boycotting French product is, a, is politicizing, uh, is a politicizing religion. That, that's Islam siyasi. It, it is beyond mind numbing. It's incredible. I mean, Look, and Allah wanted to, to shame us. Wallahi al-Azim, Allah wanted to shame Muslims and send an unequivocal message of shame on you. Because look at how Europe reacted with the invasion of Ukraine. Look how they politicized economic decisions and meant reorienting chains of supply, taking huge, severe economic losses, paying a higher price in the gas pump. But 
they're willing to sacrifice. And the same Imma, the same individuals in the US and in Europe and Australia who told Muslims that boycotting French products is a political decision didn't bat an eye once they saw what happened in, in with Ukraine and they simply ignored it. They wouldn't make just a simple connection, compare how these people stand for what they believe in and as opposed to you Muslims and shame on you Muslims. Um, your, uh, France in the last two years has closed down tens of Islamic centers and mosques. No response, not even a response by other Muslims in Europe itself, because the Islam we live today, which again I call Emirati Islam, is an Islam that tells you your religion is about ghusl and wudu and salah and has nothing to do with anything in life. No, no, no honor, no dignity, no sacred anything, no, no principles, no justice, no nothing. Subhanallah, Surah Tawbah. It, it's right in the face of these people. I mean, they, they do cartwheels to ignore, and and that is why if you go to you know all these Islamic centers and all these you know, so-called Islamic schools and universities and seminaries, rarely will you find any discussion or any tafsir of Surah At-Tawbah. It's as if, you know, they, they've, they've selected what parts of the Quran are, you know, the parts of the Quran that the Emirat and present-day Saudi and Egypt, you know, are, are happy with. And the rest of the Quran, they have no use for. Okay. Then, after underscoring the principle of sacrifice, Allah goes back to the central theme of Surah At-Tawbah. And that is the the challenges that now after the defeat of mecca and the end and and many people starting to come to in in arabia converting to islam whether genuinely or not There is, and we'll see this in the balance in the, in, in, as we go on with Surah At-Tawbah, uh, developed further, but the real risk is that Muslims would come and say, well, we're victorious, 
we can relax. And as we will see, in fact, that was the attitude that confronted the Prophet ﷺ among many groups and 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 um, and the hard days are over, and now we can enjoy. And this is sort of like the like the the hubris and the overconfident attitude in Hunayn. Oh, it's going to be a cakewalk. And Allah showed you that it's not a cakewalk. And preserving it's a it's a let me put it in order to protect what you have, in order to protect your right to exist in peace. In order to enjoy any level of stability, in the language of modernity, in order to enjoy any level of freedom, you will often have to fight. You can't protect. If you tell yourself, I have what I have, and now I just will exist in La La Land, you will be subjugated and dominated and your what you believe is autonomy and freedom and self-determination will be illusory it will be all a lie you think you have it but indeed you don't it is at this point where the world starts opening up to you and giving you what you want is the point where you must be most vigilant about the need for sacrifices and the need for commitment. So look, right after Allah declares this to be a sacred space, what follows, and people read this as if they're disjointed. It's not disjointed. It's all a part of the same discourse. قاتلوا الذين لا يؤمنون بالله ولا باليوم الآخر ولا يحرمون ما حرم الله ورسوله ولا يدين ولا يدينون بدين الحق من الذين أوتوا الكتاب حتى يعطوا الجزية عن يد وهم صاغرون so right after that, what do we need to do to protect the sacred sacred space? What do we need to do? Allah showed us that when you took things for granted, Hunayn didn't go your way. And had it but for God coming to, to support his prophet, it could have been a disaster. Now, this is declared a sacred exclusive space. Allah could have simply said, fight the unbelievers until they give you the jizya. And indeed, commentators to the Quran have sort of pondered why does Allah say, 
fight to those who do not believe in God or the final day. And do not forbid what God has forbidden. And they don't follow the true religion. From those or amongst those amongst people of the amongst people of the book. So some commentators said, well, you know, what God is talking about is saying, well, you know, Jews and Christians, for instance, allow pork and alcohol. And that's what you harimuna ma haram Allah. That they don't forbid what God forbids, meaning they don't forbid consumption of pork or alcohol. But but that's sort of cheating the meaning of the text. Because if you would have said, fight people of the book, it would have conveyed the same meaning. In my view, as, we, as we'll see in a second, the practice of the Prophet ﷺ was indeed not to fight all the people of the book. And as we will uh, I'll talk about it in a second. And in fact, didn't even take the jizya from all people of the book. But it is, there are, there are we, uh, Allah knew, and this is in my opinion, in my view, Allah knew that paganism was going to become history in Arabia. Not even that long after the death of the Prophet ﷺ, paganism becomes extinct. In fact, tribes like Banu Taghlib in Arabia, which was a major pagan tribe, didn't want to convert to Islam. It converted to Christianity. The, it, the, the trend was obvious that Paganism has become outdated, unconvincing. The infrastructure that allowed paganism to be lucrative for the elite of Arabia has crashed, has crumbled. But in order for Muslims to be able to secure their sacred spaces, Among people of the book, the way I understand is they are not committed to the same ethics of virtue that you are committed to. And therefore, they exist hostile to you. They will seek to take what you have. And we'll see this in Surah At-Tawbah when Allah starts talking about sort of dissecting the, the who are the people that Muslims must be worried about. SubhanAllah, Surah At-Tawbah speaks across the ages. And 
it is the whole when we look at when we look at the whole institution of jizya. So first, this is the the poll tax that, uh, and we've talked plenty about the institution of the poll tax before Islam, and that it was a regular part of conducting international law. The the function of a poll tax in international law before Islam was to, as a sign of who is, who acknowledges, um, not allegiance, but who acknowledges the power of the other. If powers are, if two powers are equal to one another, then they refuse to pay jizya to one another. The Sassanid Empire never agreed to pay jizya to Byzantian Empire, and the Byzantian Empire never agreed to pay a jizya to the Sassanid Empire. Why? Because they saw themselves as equally pitted. War broke out between the Sassanids and the Byzantians when an emperor would come and would make a demand. So a Byzantian emperor, emperor would take power and would approach the Sassanids and say, I expect from now on a delivery of X amount of gold. Either that or war. This is, and of course, this demand, every time was made, it was rejected, and so war would break out. If one wanted to avoid an ongoing state of war, the options are you approach the other with a treaty of non-belligerence, so I will not pay you, you will not pay me, but we will put war aside. And these treaties were always, always had an expiration date. And unlike treaties today, which normally a lot, most treaties today expire upon 99 years, that's the common practice. Even the UN Charter expires in 99 years. Um, th- that's according to the UN Charter itself. Just people don't read the, 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 they don't bother reading the actual treaty. People think that it's it's uh, indefinite. It's not indefinite. It's 99 years. Uh, back then. Part, a big part of what you negotiate is you're looking at your expectation of how long can your enemy or can the other maintain their strengths and thus maintain their ability to exist co-equal to you, not, not paying an amount that demonstrates subservience. So, for instance, if you see an emperor and you estimate this emperor is is old and might die in five years, then you would negotiate a treaty for five years. And you'd say, well, you know, I'm I'm betting on the fact that when their emperor dies, they're going to go through a period of instability and then they might be forced to renegotiate their circumstance and so on and so forth. Here... 
is a very significant innovation that Islam introduced. And again, because Muslims don't write their own history and are a colonized people who don't know anything about anything, um, it goes without... The Quran says, look, until they have, until they pay the what Muhammad Asad translated example, exemption tax or poll tax, jizya. Anyad, he translated as a willing hand, which I'll talk and I'll comment on that in, in one second. After, after having been humbled, this is Muhammad Asad's translation. Okay, so first, there is a discussion in the classical sources about what anyad means. Anyad is an idiomatic expression. Although you find a range of views, but the view that had the greatest influence upon Islamic law and the correct view, in my view, in my opinion. Anyad means antibinafs or anintiyad, duna ikrah. That anyad it, it means that willingly. They pay the jizya, anyad means willingly. If there is coercion, then there is no anyad. Wahum sahurun, meaning, although modern Muslims often think that it means that they are humiliated or degraded. Wahum sahurun, and they are inferior in power to you. Compared to you, you as Muslims must be stronger than them. If you fail to be stronger, you violated God's command already. If you accept for yourself a state of inferiority and weakness, if you understand anything about the Quran, you've already compromised. Now what is the what is the importance on the way that Muslim what is what's the importance of the way that Muslims understood Anyad willingly? And what is the innovation? Muslim jurists when they looked at the practice of the Prophet People like Al-Awza'i, Imam Al-Awza'i, the Syrian, and most Malikis, and some Hanafis, said that the jizya can be accepted from anyone 
and not necessarily just people of the book. Why do we think that Muslims say only people of the book? That's an thanks to Orientalist scholarship. Because Khadduri wrote in his book that Muslims only accept from Christians and Jews. And Khadduri had his own deal. Khadduri was a Christian, was Christian convictions, was his own program and his own, I mean, and he was an Orientalist in every sense of the word. But we forget that the, that it is only Shafi's and Hanbalis and later Hanafis who say that the jizya can be limited to Christians, Jews, and Zoroastrians and Sabians. So even them, they still say Zoroastrians and Sabians. But the Syrian school, school of Awza'i, and the Maliki school, the whole school of, Nur, of Medina and onto, onwards, said it is to be taken from anyone. But the understanding of Anyad that it must be done willingly was the entry point to a revolutionary understanding of the institution of paying the poll tax. That it is not just a money that money that you collect as a signal of your superiority to the other, but that it is money that you collect as the price as a price for protection. That was unprecedented in international practice in the Near East. When Muslim jurists like Awza'i started saying that if you are unable to protect a group, then even if they are inferior to you in power, while according to the customary practice of the Near East, you could collect the jizya, but according to Sharia, you cannot collect the jizya. Amawit, the, the Umayyads, had such a huge, well, the Umayyads and the Abbasids later as well, such a huge difficulty with this. Because the fuqaha were telling them, if you cannot protect, you must return the jizya. But if you are rely, relying on the customary practices of the Near Eastern region, no one thought the poll tax is protection money. It is subservience money. This was a radical alteration. I mean, it's amazing that all the books I've read on international law written in English by Muslims, not a single scholar have pointed this very obvious point, all you need to do is study the legal systems of the, Near East, of, the, of the Near East at the time. And you will see how radical, and especially that Muslims actually practiced it. Not always, not consistently. Nothing is ever consistent in historical practice. But there were plenty of times where Muslims, in fact, 
said, we can't protect you, so we can't collect the jizya. This is no small, small deal, people. All studies of international law start with Suarez, Pfuffendorf, and Vettel, and Grotius in the 17th century onwards. But the civilizing ideas that influenced the Venetian school and the Italian school of international law, where did it come from? It came from the Islamic influence. The, civil, the, the idea that international law is not just about brute power, but there are principles. It's really sad. It's really sad because it's just the, 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 the way, I mean, I, how, how many times I've listened to these people who are very proud of themselves, ex-Muslims or former Muslims or whatever, and in every ad nauseum, every time, this is one of the verses that they'll point to as verses of shame and embarrassment. And I laugh. Yani, I, of course, I don't mean to laugh, but I laugh out of sadness, out of the, at the level of ignorance. Because if these people had any level of education, if but it's not their fault. How are they going to get educated if the Muslims are not educating them? And Muslims are happy with their scholars who, you know, wear turbans and look like they belong to, you know, in 10 centuries ago, and, and, but their brains are empty because they never read any real scholarship. Who's going to educate them? And if they understood what this little verse triggered and the revolution it caused in international law, and if they understood that when Banu Taghlub, for instance, who were pagan, and they chose, Banu Taghlub chose to convert not to Islam, but to Christianity. When they saw that paganism is, 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 is khalas, it's is, is, uh, backwards, it's you know not in fashion anymore. So, but they didn't want to be Muslims. And then Banu Taghlub, Go read books of Sira. Banu Taghlib, when, when they sent representatives to the Prophet and said, it is degrading for us to pay the jizya. So the Prophet told them, okay, you will not pay a jizya, you will pay a sadaqah. And for until Banu Taghlib converted centuries later to Islam, they, what they paid to Muslims was a sadaqah. But what's very interesting is that when Omar comes to power, he tells him, okay, we collect a sadaqah from you. That means I will treat you as part of the our relationship to you, with you, is not a relationship of we protect you. If your fortunes go up and down with with the with the economics of Islam, so if we have money to help your poor, we will help your poor. You are part of us, but of course they were not required to to because non-Muslims didn't 
contribute to the military. But they had a special relationship. Um, the other thing that is also astounding is that I've read tons of ancient medieval agreements of payments. You know, the, 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 as I said, it was so common. Look, when Andalus, in its waning days, every Muslim imara in Andalus paid a jizya to the Christian states. And the reason that Andalus eventually was defeated is that the Christian states kept raising the jizya that the Muslims had to pay until they would get to a point where they can't afford it, and then they would be invaded. I mean, again, the, the um, the amazing thing in Islamic sources is that they say the jizya has to be pursuant to aqt zimma. There has to, it has to be pursuant to be a contract, and zimma means a contract of protection. And they explicitly say, and I've traced this in numerous, that the condition of this contract is that it is not entered into through coercion. And if it is coercively entered into, then by definition, it cannot be aqzim. It cannot be a contract of protection. The idea that coercion cannot be used in international affairs was another radical Muslim innovation. No one thought until that the Muslim age, no one thought that coercion is somehow would negate it, it, it could in Roman law coercion could negate a, a contract, but not a treaty. Not a treaty. Because people understood international affairs or the law of nations or the, the, the law of political entities as necessarily coercive. It is a natural thing for it to be coercive. The, the stronger coerces the weaker. Muslims came along and introduced for the first time even Suarez and Grotius and Pfuffendorf in the 7th century couldn't reach that, that, they thought that's too radical. That is why they, they, they allowed the colonizing of indigenous populations because they could not get themselves to say that contracts that were entered into coercively with indigenous populations are void. They thought that, so that is even one part, even in the 17th century, that the, 
imagine if Muslims understood these realities about their tradition. Again, I go back because I, you know, I've, I've told myself that it's not good for my health anymore to, to listen to these ex-Muslims because it, it's just it's so ignorant. But again, I, I'm just full of anger. I'm, I don't know who to be angry. I, I'm not angry at them because I, I, you know, they're ignorant, but I can't blame them for their ignorance because obviously they've never met a teacher worth their, their, their salt in their life. But who, who do you get upset at? I mean, when you reach that level of, abys- of, 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 of utter abysmal standards, in in just the knowledge of your own history. Okay. And of course, you know, the, the, you can you know all of this material about that you can't the the how much the jizya has to be that it cannot be what they cannot afford that it cannot be uh, you cannot assess a jizya on old people or women or children or people of religion priests and and rabbis and and so on uh, that it it cannot be an oppressive amount you can't beat them you can't torture them you can't imprison them. all of these were radical innovations by Islam, because again, I spent a lifetime now reading about medieval state of conduct or or conduct of state, medieval practices, and to see if there were any precedent to the idea that you can't imprison the others, followers of another religion, if they fail to pay you. And the, the, the people who invented that concept were Muslims. Okay, let's take, uh, is it Maghrib? Should we pray Maghrib? Okay, let's pray Maghrib and then we'll come back. Bismillah ar-Rahman ar-Rahim. Maybe to summarize this material, because Surah Tawbah is the surah is the has the verse that is usually pointed to as having the issue of uh, jizya. Um, That just in no legal system speaks with one voice, and no historical reality speaks in one trajectory. What is interesting here are the ideals that sprout that presented represented 
advancements to human thinking. And in this context, to just summarize what we've talked about, that first, and, I, and I'm, I'm not going to do it in order because I can't remember the order, but but an yad means an tibi nafs or an tibi khater that duna ikrah that the 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 payment of the jizya must be consensual, not coercive, and that that was an innovation. Now, was that actually practiced in the history of imperial Islam? It went up and down. It, it, you you can't generalize the. Quite often, it was not practiced because regardless of what the ideals are, human beings, especially political leaders that govern over empires, uh, their practice is guided by often not by religious ideals, but nevertheless, religious ideals remain there to as as a as a moral way to hold real politic to account, to hold, to 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 take political decisions to task. So, one is the idea of non-coercion, as we've said. Second, is that the akdima, the the which was a radical idea is that it is a contract to protect, not a contract of subservience, but a contract of protection. If you are unable to protect, then according to the ideals of the law, you are not entitled to collect the jizya. But furthermore, even within the ideals of the earliest jurists and the earliest authorities, basing themselves on the practice of the Prophet ﷺ, is that when groups objected to the payment of jizya because they thought it is demeaning or degrading, there was no obstacle to changing the obligation from a jizya to a sadaqah. So it is not a, a, a dogmatic point. Moreover, it is well established that the jizya is collected, assessed only upon male figures of active age, so children are excluded, elders are excluded, the religious class is excluded, women are excluded, and it is debated whether things like farmers and peasants uh, are excluded or not. It is also well established that the jizya cannot be an oppressive amount. It cannot be an amount that causes hardship and that in collecting the jizya, you cannot resort to measures such as beating 
uh, or imprisoning. And the example that was often given in books of law, you can't punish people by having them stand out in the sun because that was a very common practice that the Byzantines followed among Arab tribes when they collected the poll tax from them is that those who failed to pay the poll tax would be forced to stand out in the sun uh, for days until they collapsed. And Muslim jurists were very specific about saying that that's torture and that's not allowed. Now, I emphasize, these are ideals. The nature of, of legal practice is that people react to situations sometimes by betraying their ideals. So you can find texts, especially texts that were written during the Crusades when Muslim lands were invaded by Crusades. And remember that there were as many as 14 different Crusades, 14 different invasions of what the the, the heartland of the Near East, the heartland of the Middle East, which this is the indigenous lands of Muslims. Um, it, it, is not, it is not surprising to find a jurist writing a treatise that is full of vehemence against the invaders and so is extremely hostile to Christians, or it's, it's, it was Christians. I mean, Jews actually, uh, uh, it's very rare to find a text that was hostile to Jews until uh, Zionism and uh, Palestine. Um, actually, Jews were, were and until recently, were often seen as part, uh, natural allies to Muslims. We, again, in response to the Crusades, because the Crusades butchered Muslims and Jews together. So when you find that, you know, these people are butchered alongside of you, um, it's it's hard to 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 cast them as the other. They're 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 cast as part of who you are. Uh, so it is not surprising that you find texts, but what. What's always surprising is the moral innovation to an established practice. So to talk of non-coercion, to talk of not using torture, to talk of not using imprisonment, to talk about that it is a contract of protection, that's what, that, these were the innovations. These were the unusual developments. Whether Muslims in fact were able to live up to their own ideals or not, that's a different matter. I mean, and that's a complicated matter because sometimes they did and sometimes they didn't. Um, now, having said all of this, I believe, well, first, note that fight as the ayah that fight those who do not believe in God, etc., etc. The tendency of some Muslim scholars to see this ayah as abrogating 
every other ayah that deals with the, the non-Muslim other is ridiculous. You know, as some have said that, you know, ayat al-Saif abrogated 133 ayahs. It's ridiculous. This ayah must be understood in light of what everything else the Quran says. So when the Quran says, la ta'tadu, inna Allah la yuhibbul mu'tadeen, that don't, don't be aggressors, that Allah doesn't forbid you from being to peacefully coexisting with those who don't take your lands and don't kick you out of your homes. The command to fight must be understood in the context of everything else the Quran says about the other, including don't commit aggression. Now, furthermore, the context of this ayah is very clear that coming right after the sacred space has been declared as an exclusive Muslim spatial reality, the qital here, taken in context of the entire Quranic message, is that so you are able to protect your sacred spaces. I mean, look at Muslim history. We've lost Mecca and Medina. We have no autonomy over Mecca and Medina. It is not, if you think Muslims can decide what happens to Mecca and Medina, <laughs> remember when, when the Haram was taken over by Jama'at Juhayna or Juhaymiyyin or whatever they were called, it was French paratroopers who came in and stormed the Holy Haram and, and killed uh, these fellows. It was French paratroopers, not, not Muslim forces. There is no Muslim sovereign on the face of the earth has any authority over what happens in Mecca and Medina it is only Saudi Arabia, and Saudi Arabia is entirely subservient to the former colonial powers of the world, or the existing colonial powers of the world. The U.S., as Trump said, you know, to to stood, you know, King, you must pay because we protect you. You know, Trump is collecting jizya, protection money, in the old Byzantine meaning of jizya, not in the Islamic meaning of jizya, uh, but you know, as a sign of your subservience, as a sign of your, and our dominance, which of course includes the dominance of Israel and everything else Western. Anyway. So, the message is clear that meaning, and they are weaker than you. You are under an affirmative obligation to be stronger and stronger so that so you can be in a position to actually offer a contract of protection it is not a contract of dominance a con if you are not stronger you can protect no one else leave alone yourself this having said all of that it is critical when you look at the actual seerah of the Prophet 
the reason that you are entering in a contract with in a contract of them a contract of protection is because you are protecting the other there is a choice here you either remain the other meaning outsiders and there is a contract you pay us and we protect you which of course implies the freedom to say we don't want to pay you and we don't want your protection but you remain the other but if you are like Banu Taghlub and other tribes later on that choose to be one and the same with Muslims the Prophet ﷺ didn't collect the jizya from the Jewish tribes in Medina. In Saqifat al-Medina, the constitution of Medina, the agreement was, we are, we help one another as the same people. And what that means is, there is a, in the modern age, the reason that you don't collect jizya from Christians and Jews in your country or, or Hindus or Buddhists or whatever is in the modern nation state, they are not the other. They are part of who you are. They are like the Banu Taghlub. You, they are not a separate entity. There is no such thing as someone dominating them but not you, or dominating you but not them. The very logic that upon which this was founded was the logic of the conduct of nations at the time, in which empires, dynasties, political entities defined boundaries territorial boundaries were endlessly flexible and malleable and you could say well today my boundaries includes this clan tomorrow this clan doesn't want to be a part of me so my boundary excludes this clan this clan is on its own if we go back to a world like that then it's something else but in today's world where you have this massive international treaty called the United Nations Treaty and the United Nations Charter. And you have signatories to that charter in which everyone agrees that there are stable, constant boundaries and that boundaries must be protected and that you cannot transgress upon the territorial boundaries of another nation. That is, by definition, a world wedded by a musalaha an ahd, a, a world established upon a system of treaty. If there is, and not that I would advise it, because it, it, <laughs> if there exists a modern state that comes and says, we don't want to be a part of the nation, United Nations, and we don't want to sign onto the UN Charter, and we don't recognize anyone's borders. Of course, that means that no one will recognize your borders. And which also means that then anyone can invade you. 
which also means that you will be at war with the world, exactly like the Daesh people. Anyone can strike against you because you can strike against anyone. And you then will become obliterated from the face of the earth very quickly. Once you enter into the charter system, you have entered into a world of muwada and musalaha, in which, by definitions, the, the, the def, defining the insider as opposed to the outsider does away with the whole protection money idea. So this is very clear, so that no one can, you know, come and say, oh, well, you know, he's defending the, the I, there's a difference between saying there Muslims introduced moral, innovative, humanistic ideas to international practice. Often ideas that they were not in a position to sponsor and chaperone into full fruition. But it behooves us to go back and study the way that Islam was always at the cutting edge of virtue or morality. And that's what we should seek and aspire to reproduce. You're not on the cutting edge if you force time to turn backwards. You're not on the cutting edge if you just enter into a time machine and go back and change the rules of the game. That's, that's laziness. That's just because you're, you're not very intelligent and not very knowledgeable, and so you want to pretend that the world is, you know, hasn't happened, that time hasn't changed, that people's consciousness haven't moved on. It behooves us to take things as they are and to rise up to the moral challenge. That's the point. Okay. I know I've spent a lot of time on this point, but it's, it is important because of the significance, the, the, the extent to which so many Muslims still today take this ayah plucked out of its context plucked out of where, it, when, and how, and in what context Allah reveals it. And as we will see, more is going to come about this. Okay. Then, this, the only thing to say about what, the, the ayah that uh, follows 30, وَقَالَتِ الْيَهُودِ عَزِيزٌ نِبْنُ اللَّهِ وَقَالَتِ النَّصَارَ الْمَسِيحُ بِنُ اللَّهِ ذَلِكَ قَوْلُهُمْ بِأَفْوَاهِمْ يُضْعَهُونَ قَوْلَ الَّذِينَ كَفْرُوا مِنْ قَبْلِ قَاطَلَهُمُ اللَّهِ um, this is 30. Uh, of course, we, we all know where the, that, uh, the Christians say that Jesus is the Son of God comes from. You know, the Bible refers sometimes to Jesus as the Son of Man the, um, and sometimes as the, the Son of the Father. And it is part of the, but the the interesting part is the um, is um, Jews saying that Ezra is the son of God. There is a report that a Jewish 
um, a Jewish tribe, and again, it's very interesting, the mention of Jewish tribes after uh, the 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 after the Banu, the the eviction of Banu Quraiza and and so on from Medina, and after the Battle of Khaybar, but that a Jewish tribe came to the Prophet and made that proclamation that Ezra is the son of God and that this ayah was revealed in response. Um, there are a lot of questions about this tradition. Um, it doesn't name the tribe. It doesn't say anything about who these Jews were. Um, uh, and it is, anyway, there are a number of problems with the, the tradition. There is evidence, however, that the idea, because if you read a lot of Orientalists will, and this is not new, by the way, this is even from medieval time, respond to the Quran by saying, well, Jews never said that Israel is the son of God. But even Muslim scholars themselves, even Quranic commentators, medieval Quranic commentators, would say that no Jews remain in our time that claim that Ezra was the son of God. And they they explicitly, or they specify that this was a belief among particular Arab Jews before Islam, and the debated issue is whether they survived until the prophecy of the Prophet or not. But it is a faction, an Arab faction within Judaism that, and the the, the mythology, just so you know uh, where the mythology comes from, comes from, is that after the destruction of the Second Temple and the Jewish diaspora and the enslavement of Jews the, this is the mythology, at least, is that Ezra um, comes and he founds that the original Torah revealed to Musa has um, become lost. And that Ezra pray, prays to God that God re-reveals the Torah and that a light appears and enters into, depending on the, the, the version you read, enters into Israel's mouth or enters into Israel's uh, head, and whereupon the Torah is re-revealed to Ezra. And that Ezra is told, because you are my son, I re-revealed the Torah to you. And that upon that, that type of mythology or that, 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 version of the narrative because there are many different versions about Ezra and and his communication with God that a particular particular Arab Jews started saying that Ezra is the son of God uh, 
Allahu A'lam whether it was in response to Christians or not. But even Muslim authorities themselves, even the earliest authorities that I found, was already saying that there are no Jews that any longer claim that Ezra was the son of God by the time that uh, the Quran is revealed. Um, okay, anyway, it's a, just a technical point. Oh, okay. Now we get to the look at what comes right after. As I said, that Surah Tawbah will start dissecting when a people that could have all the material conditions for victory would still be defeated. And what are the non-material causes or the, the spiritual ailments that would cause the defeat of a people who claim to be a people of God? And here, اتخذوا أحبارهم ورهبانهم أرباب من دون الله والمسيح ابن مريم وما أمروا إلا ليعبدوا الله إلا ليعبدوا إلها واحدة لا إله إلا هو سبحان الله سبحانه عما يشكون سبحان الله سبحانه عما يشكون The Quran faults them for taking their as Muhammad as their rabbis and monks as effective gods beside God. And the Prophet ﷺ in a famous hadith, when he's asked about that, he, he says that they did not worship them in fact. لم يكونوا يعبدونهم ولكنهم أحلوا ما استحلوا وحرموا ما حرموا but they would follow them blindly as to in terms of what they allowed and not allowed. Now of course the implications of this is quite obvious. When human beings in their claim of religiosity, no longer defer to God, but defer to other human beings. That they are effectively then worshiping other than God. Imagine if someone comes and says to you, well, this applies only to Jews and Christians. You would intuitively say that's ridiculous because anyone that engages in the same type of conduct would deserve the same type of moral judgment. When do human beings 
blindly follow what other human beings. So, if one of the things that currently is sort of very common among Islamic circles, unfortunately, is we've entered this fad, although in the Islamic tradition is replete with replete with moral lessons that condemn Fuqaha al-Sultan, the, the shiuch that put themselves in the service of those in power, justifying whatever those in power want. Right now, if you listen to a lot of what is being said by Azhari sheikhs, by Azhari shiuch, or by Emiratis like uh, Nasim Yusuf or whatever his name is, this uh, loser, or even someone like Adnan Ibrahim, from they defend the idea of scholars being subservient to those in political power and defend the idea that yes, a scholar should simply obey the political leaders, right or wrong. So even Adnan Ibrahim with the issue of the, when Qaradawi passed away, uh, he said, defending the fact that Sheikh Al-Azhar didn't say one word about Qaradawi's passing away. Um, well, of course, it, it, uh, Sheikh Al-Azhar must obey the instructions of his government. And his, his, his government said, no one is to convey condolences, no one is to do janazah prayer or salat al-ghaib on the soul of Qaradawi, and it is, that's what he should do, and it should be this way. This, this orientation of saying that in Islam it is legitimate for a scholar, for a sheikh, to be entirely subservient to those in political power uh, is like, uh, what's his name, uh, that sheikh Khalid Gundi in, in Egypt, who says, yes, I am among Fuqaha sultan I am proud of it. I, I I am a faqih sultan and I am proud of being a faqih sultan because in Islam we are ordered to but look at the the logic of this ayah if a faqih is not obeying what they believe autonomously God wants but believing, but obeying what a political leader wants. And as a result, then delivers God's judgment in accordance to what the political hierarchy wants. And you, in turn, obey that faqih. So you do as the fuqaha of the Emirat and Egypt and Saudi are telling you. You, in turn, say, God's will is in accordance with what the faqih is saying, whose will is in turn in accordance with what the political authorities are saying. How is that any different 
from those who have taken their rabbis and their monks as their gods. Except that here it is even worse because your shiuch have taken those in power as their gods and then you've taken the shiuch as your gods. So effectively, you worship those in political power. So you're not even you're not even going through the pretense of what Jews and Christians did of worshiping those who are you know obedient to those who are uh, pretend to be devout or you believe to be devout. You you're actually even much worse than that. You're simply obeying those who are led by nothing but political expedience. The, the implications of this, just this one ayah are devastating. When Allah comes and says, the problem Allah has with Christians and Jews, he doesn't just limit it to the fact that they associate partners with God or but that they have made the repository of the divine will the mechanics of blind obedience, then how about Muslims? And then notice how Allah characterizes this with a human being their relationship to Allah is no longer direct, no longer based on spiritual conviction, no longer based on rational proof, no longer based on any real knowledge, but based on these are my leaders and I follow my leaders. Look at how Allah characterizes this. If only... Oh my God. How is this characterized? يُرِيدُونَ أَيُطْفِئُوا نُورَ اللَّهِ بِأَفْوَاهِهِمْ وَيَأْبَ اللَّهُ إِلَّا أَيُطِمَّ نُورَهُ وَلَوْ كَرِهَ الْكَافِرُونَ It is not that Allah is telling you that Jews and Christians, regardless of what they do, they are extinguishing God's light. It is by engaging in this kind of conduct that they are extinguishing God's light. It is the conduct when human beings are no longer elevated by the divine, no longer even have a relationship with it. This is, this is part of the problem with despotism and authoritarianism is that it teaches you to be morally indolent, morally lazy. You relegate moral judgment to whoever you imagine is in charge of thinking for you and deciding for you. So he says haram, it's haram. He says halal, it's halal. He says up, it's up. He says down, it's down. You are no longer a human being. And because you are no longer a human being, you are a 
darkened vessel. Light cannot penetrate. This is why, have you ever noticed in despotic societies, you are often shocked at the amount of cruelty and moral wrong that people no longer react to. Saudiya executed just in 2002, 180 people. Many of those that were executed were on political charges. And even many of those who were executed on criminal charges was after woefully inadequate due process. Many of them were not represented by attorneys. Even those who were represented by attorneys, attorneys regularly complained that they were not allowed to speak in court, not allowed to produce, that it, it, whether someone was going to be convicted or not depended on their nationality, their citizenship, not on anything. That, and many of those executed were minors. That's even the, just a criminal. But many of the, those who executed were, were pol, pol, political opponents. Do you notice how the execution of 180 people no longer has any reverberations in Saudi society? No one cares. No one pauses. No one says, how could this be? 14-year-old got executed. We're not even sure why. Or... This is, this is, if you, if you read, read Abdurrahman al-Kawakibi's Taba'a-Istibdad, the nature of despotism indoctrinates human beings to no longer be in the practice of exercising moral judgments. And because you do not exercise moral judgments, the lights dim and then are eventually turned off within your soul. And the lights do not penetrate anymore. So even when the, 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 the light of morality and virtue and beauty comes upon you, you, are, you can't receive it. The lights are off. You've shut down. You can't receive it. This is why despotism and autocracy and those that tell you in Islam we blindly obey whoever is in power and we don't talk about politics and we don't talk about justice and Islam is about ghusl and wudu and so on are turning you into zalami human beings, into darkened human beings. Human beings without light. Those who obey their rabbis and monks blindly are extinguishing the lights of God. Ponder how revolutionary this is. Why is it that with 
as despotic as the Umayyads were, still the Islamic with all the autocracy, still even with a figure like Al-Hajjaj in Islamic history, compared to the Sassanid Empire, compared to the Mongol Empire, compared to the Byzantine Empire, relatively, Islam had far greater freedoms within the, 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 the way people lived and exercised their judgment than any of these empires. And this is why Muslims built a civilization, is because people's souls were not darkened. People could still develop an interest into Greek mathematics, Greek philosophy, Greek mythology, could still have ideas and pursue these ideas without fear of repercussion and fear of being silenced. Or they could still make radical, I mean, they could still develop some widely crazy Sufi schools of thought and this freedom resulted in many crazy sectarian movements. But you produce a great deal of craziness as a price for maintaining the essential light that is necessary for a healthy ummah. The craziness is a cost that you have to pay. It just It's inevitable. You know, for every 10 crazy ideas, but the one idea that comes is worse than 10 crazy ideas. What time is it? Tell me was it nine, when it's 9.30. Okay. Now, of course, uh, um, 33 is just a very famous ayah. Um, I don't have much to add to, but anyway. So, just so, because of his... هُوَ الَّذِي أَرْسَلَ رَسُولَهُ بِالْهُدَى وَدِينَ الْحَقِّ لِيُظِرَهُ عَلَى الدِّينِ كُلِّهُ وَلَوْ كَرْهَ الْمُشْرِكُونَ He's the one that sent God's Apostle, and this is Muhammad's translation again. God sent God's Apostle with the with guidance and the religion of truth to the end that God may cause it to prevail over all false religions. However hateful this may be those to ascribe divinity to out beside God. In Surah At-Tawbah generally, what is so remarkable is that with all the severe criticisms of the ailments of hypocrisy that Surah At-Tawbah points out, at the same time, Allah assures Muslims or declares that it is a done, ma a done deal that the religion of Islam will exist and will thrive. So, although, you know, Muslims have, especially modern Muslims, have taken this ayah in some very strange interpretations. But 
the promise that Allah makes is that this deen, this deen al-haq, the deen of the of religion, of truth, is going to prevail. I understand that it's going to prevail not over all false religions forever, but is is prevailed in a relative sense, meaning it's going to prevail where it should prevail to survive and exist so that the, because as we will see in the same surah that tells us this Allah comes and says that if you don't fight in in God's if you don't meet your challenges if you don't rise to the, the, the obligations that Allah sets upon you including fighting that Allah will replace you with another people. What Allah's promise is that Izhar al-Din, that this religion will exist and will persist. What Allah doesn't promise is that this will be achieved through you. You as human beings, so... I don't exclude, I mean, I don't know when the hereafter is, and I don't, I'm not one of those people who believes that, you know, we are living in the last century or, you know, it's Allah Alam, this is in Allah's hands, I don't even speculate about it, and I don't even think about it. But, I do not exclude any possibility that the day would exist where the people who actually uplift this religion and carry it forward uh, would be far from where this religion was born, far from Arabia, far from the Middle East. Where in the world, I don't know. That's Allah's business. But what I cannot do is rely on this verse to say that well, you know, I take care of myself and I do my ghusl and my salah and Allah will take care of the of Izhar al-Din. Because, in fact, you can, this, this ayah can only be read in this way by twisting the meaning of the ayah beyond all reasonable meaning. All it says is that this is the religion of truth. This is the apostle of truth. And Allah's promise is that the religion of this apostle, as the truth that was revealed, will prevail. Now, how about a religion that you've corrupted? How about the religion, not of the apostle, but the religion of Shaykh al-Azhar, who grovel at the feet of Sisi? How about the religion of Shaykh al-Saudiyya, who grovel at the feet of MBS? How about the religion of the Shaykh of Emirat, who grovel at the, at the feet of MBZ? How about the religion of 
Muslims in the West who seem to think religion is about looking looking foreign and looking medieval. And the optics of difference. You know, has Allah promised that that religion will prevail? Then again, remember what I told you the, the qaida that whatever Allah says in criticisms of none others, the other, the non-Muslim other, a priori applies to Muslims. So look at 34. Right after Allah tells you that Deen al-Haq and Izhar Deen al-Haq is one thing. But then right after Allah talks about Ya Ayyuhaladina Amanu, Inna Kathiran, Minal Ahbari, Waruhban, Laya Kuruna Amwalin Nas, Bilbatil, Wayasuduna and Sabilillah. وَالَّذِينَ يَكْنِزُونَ الْذَهَبُ وَالْفِضَّةِ وَلَا يُنْفِقُونَهَا فِي سَبِيلِ اللَّهِ فَبَشِّرْهُمْ بِعَذَابٍ أَلِيمٍ So, behold, many of the rabbis and monks wrongfully devour the possessions of people, the wealth of people. Not only that, but also they turn people away from the path of God. So, as for those who hoard the treasures of gold and silver and do not spend it in the sake of God, give them the tidings of grievous suffering and so on. We pause again. Why? So, Deen al-Haq, wa izhar Deen al-Haq, it, it is not a Deen based on worshipping your authorities, whether those are in political power or those who wear the mantle of religious authority. It is not based on blindly following what they say. But Deen al-Haq also is not based and cannot be based when those who represent religious authority the example Allah gives us is that the rabbis and monks have become corrupted. They hoard money and they don't spend money and what is it is whatever the venues of spending that are pleasing to God so when you spend money in in teaching people in educating people that's when you spend money in preparing a strong army that's when you spend money in inventing a medicine to treat people that's when you spend money taking care of the indigent and the homeless and the poor and the refugee, that's fi sabilillah. 
Allah comes and says, these people have fallen into a grievous error, not just do they worship their, their rabbis and monks, so it's not about worshiping God anymore, but their rabbis and monks themselves have become about material wealth and comfort and not about a message and a cause. Their money is not spent in the venues. Whatever money they collect is not spent in the venues that are pleasing to Allah, but in, you know, what, what I don't know, what beautifying the Vatican eventually or whatever it is. Now, I'm not interested in criticizing in, in the criticism of the other for its own sake. I'm only interested in it about what it teaches me teaches me about myself. So I look upon this and I say, Oh Allah, Taib. How about Shiyukh that their entire existence is about making sure that the paycheck continues coming from their government. How about shiyukh that hold a great deal of property, including some shiyukh that I've been to their homes in, in some countries, that who hatta yani. You know, one of the things that, that really shocked me, this is, was in, in Dar al-Ifta in, in, uh, in Egypt. As, as you guys know, I, I had once upon a time a very close relationship with... Um, so I was asking around, I was saying I, I wanted to buy property in Egypt. And so... The, the director of the Mufti's office told me, oh, you know, the, the Mufti can really help you in this. You can, we can get you a great piece of property. What I discovered that the, the going price of property, this was before the revolution, um, was Outside what I could afford, having lived my life in America, what the, the what it was, it was something like um, it would be the the equivalent of sixty thousand dollars cash, and so of course it became. But I knew that a lot of the shiuch had not just a villa in Tagamo, this is like where at the time where a lot of the, the richest people were buying villas, but they would get a villa in Tagamo and they would get a rest house in this uh, tourist area, Sahel, as they say, and a rest house, I mean, four or five rest houses and other than the old home that belongs to the family, a, a villa in the in new development areas. And then I very quickly learned that 
their relationship to the government. The government gives them these properties at nominal prices in return for their loyalty. So you have a sheikh who's on paper, their income, uh, you know, maybe is 10,000 pounds a month. But they own property that is worth millions of pounds. And not just one piece of rock, but multiple properties. And that it is their relationship to the state that, and immediately I, this verse in Surah Tawbah kept ringing in my head. In a country in which there are numerous homeless people, in a country in which poverty is out of control, and how is this any different from what the Quran describes in terms of shiuch, who they think of themselves as not in the in the business of kanzal dhahab wal fiddah, but it is. It is our modern form of dhahab wal fiddah. I mean, our modern, it, 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 it doesn't give you a, a bag full of golden coins, gold coins, but he gives you bonuses in envelopes full of cash. He gives you a property that is worth a million dollars on Sahar al-Shamali for, you know, $5,000 or the equivalent of $5,000. And you know, deducts the 5000 from your salary at over a period of 50 years. That's the reality of these shiuch. And the shiuch that step out of line, immediately they lose everything. They, they lose the, the driver, they lose the security, they, they, they assigned, uh, you know, armed security that goes around driving them. They, they lose the, the, the properties that they, immediately the government says, you this property is not paid for, it's not paid for, you must return these pro They lose literally everything. These are the shiuch. If you wonder why these shiuch are able to watch egregious injustices and remain silent, that's the reality that no one dares talk about. Because if you talk about it, it's known that immediately you've earned the ire of the entire class of Mashaikh. And this is the reality in Jordan, in Syria, in Egypt, in the Emirates, in Saudi It is just the reality everywhere. The reality in Morocco, the reality in Mauritania, the reality in... it, And it is... You, you want Allah to, to bless anything? We do? It's not going to work. It, it, you, know, you, you can't fool. You, you can't just because you want to pretend that we have the aura of Imaniyat because Imaniyat make you feel warm inside. You, you can't put your head in the sand and just pretend they exist when when you've corrupted everything to the core.
it's not going to work. And also note another thing in in this area that's astounding. Look, when when, when Allah says to you, "Wayasuduna an sabilillah," just that phrase, and they repel people away from the path of God. Okay. How are all the different ways that a person of religious authority can repel people away from the path of God? It is not just by, you know, enjoying their 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 summer resort property and letting people live in in in, in you know most people can't even buy a place to get married in. It's not just that, but. If you are ignorant, if the, the the image of a religious authority is a person who's a loser in life, you will turn people away from the path of God. Because people will, will look and say, a doctor is respectable, an engineer is respectable, a computer scientist is respectable, but a religious man, a religious man, talks stupid, sounds stupid, sounds behind the times. It is such a significant responsibility when Allah says that you as a religious authority cannot be the cause for sudud and sabilillah. Imagine the example that you must set for humanity so that people will be attracted to God through you rather than repulsed from God because of you. And when Allah comes, especially in Surah At-Tawbah, the, the Surah in which Allah is prepping us for the, the end of the message, and basically saying, you know, here are the things that could go wrong after the Prophet ﷺ is gone, that would render you, put you in very hot waters, in deep, deep trouble. Your, your, your listening antenna must be propped up all the way when you read Surah At-Tawbah because you are paying attention to all the things Allah is warning you about that would remove the blessing of Allah's light from you. And rending you into this darkened vessel, as we we said. It just, um, yeah. I mean, you know, I knew Surah Tawbah is going to go slow because it is just so. Um, You could have seminars just on Surah Tawbah and unpacking all the different messages. And even as I'm doing it, and I'm and I'm I'm not rushing, but I mean we've only covered a few verses in Tarhaga, but I I'm I still feel like I'm not doing an adequate job because there's so much more that you can unpack and so much more that you can say. And anyway, okay.
I mean, the, of course, the th I, I don't have anything to say about 35 except that it's a terrifying image. That, uh, when Allah comes and promises people of religious authority and, and says, I mean, it, 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 look, just read 35 for yourself. It, 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 it's terrifying. It, it, all, the, all the stuff that you've hoarded, all the, because you've hoarded, there's a difference between a medical doctor or an engineer or, or, or any other profession. But a, but a religious authority is paid money because their job is their religious authority. So every wealth you hoard could be a damning testimony against you. By what right you've made this money? On the basis of your religious authority? Well, did you, was it? Did you really represent God's will, God's religion, faithfully, truthfully? It's 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 terrifying. Taste what, what you've been hoarding. Uh, and and the idea that that Allah point you know focuses on people of religious authority that could have spent that well whatever wealth they've made. In in I personally understand this that Allah is saying that because you have to be an example to others, because you must be the bridge upon which people cross to Allah, you in particular, you are not allowed to get rich. Whatever money you amass has to be spent in the way of Allah, it has to become a means because. If if a if a normal person can be forgiven for indulging in certain luxuries, not with a person of the status of the ahbar and the ruhban and the shiukh, because none of this wealth should accrue to your own benefit. It, it should be all, you, you are nothing but a facilitator to Allah's path. Uh, so I disagree respectfully with those who say, because th this has been a recent issue, well, you know, what's wrong with a man of God or a woman of God for that matter who's, who's rich as long as they pay sadaqat? No, I, I have a problem with it. I think a, a, a man of God uh, should not be rich. I mean, I'm, ta I'm talking about a person of the, of the status of a monk or a rabbi or, in other words, a person who holds himself or herself out as an authority. You don't have the right to luxury. You don't have the right to amass wealth. You must, your wealth must always be 
facilitated in the path of Allah because you've committed yourself to the statement that you don't care about this dunya, you care about the akhra. And people will look at you to see you as the embodiment of that. And Allah may Allah know, Allah knows best. What time is it? Okay, close. Oh, okay. Okay. Now, here, Surah At-Tawbah makes a very interesting new paragraph. Allah talks, it, it, if you're not paying attention, it might seem like it's a completely different topic, but it's not. Allah talks about the month in Allah's time. So look. إِنَّ عِدَّةُ الشُّهُورَ عِنْدَ اللَّهِ إِثْنَ عَشْرَ شَهْرًا فِي كِتَابِ اللَّهِ يَوْمَ خَلَقَ السَّمَاوَاتِ وَالْأَرْضِ the, behold, the number of months in the sight of God is 12 months, laid down in God's decree, on the day that God created the heavens and earth. And out of these are four sacred, okay? Minha arba'atun hurum. Thalika ad-deenul qayyim, fala tazlimu fihinna anfusakum. So this is described as the true religion and Allah warns you so do not commit an injustice against yourself and we'll unpack this in a second okay and so then Allah says so fight المشركين وقاتل المشركين كافة كما يقاتلونكم كافة so Mindful of this, fight against those who, let, let's call them, the, Muhammad Asad always translates, translates it as ascribe divinity to art beside God, the mushrikeen, the unbelievers, for our purposes. Let's just take it as, as that for now. Altogether, just as they fight you altogether. Okay. But then. Allah continues on to say, إِنَّمَا النَّسِيءُ زِيَادَةٌ فِي الْكُفْرِ زِيَادَةٌ فِي الْكُفْرِ يُضُلُّ بِهِ الَّذِينَ كَفَرُوا يُحِلُّونَهُ عَامًا وَيُحَرِّمُونَهُ عَامًا لِيُوَاطِئُ عِدَّةَ مَا حَرَّمَ اللَّهُ فَيُحِلُّ مَا حَرَّمَ اللَّهُ زُيِّنَ لَهُمْ سُوءُ أَعْمَالِهِمْ وَاللَّهُ لَا يَهْدِي الْقَوْمَ الْكَافِرِينَ Okay, so... Oh, the, the translation. Well, I'll, I'll explain the nasih. So then Allah goes on to say that the nasih, which is a practice that we'll explain in a second, is particularly offensive to Allah. And that the unbelievers practice it one year, don't practice it another year, and that this is a most despicable behavior. So what is the relation here? Notice, 
first, let's say, first Allah saying in the same way that those who are committed to fighting you fight you with zeal. They must find in you the equal type of zeal. In other words, when you when your enemy is committed to all-out war, not mean that doesn't mean war without limits. It just means committed to eradicating you. You must you cannot be equivocal about your commitment to fighting a proportionate war. But mindful of that, Allah still tells you that Allah has four months every year that are sacred months, meaning months in which war and belligerence is prohibited. That unless you are attacked, because elsewhere it says, but unless you are attacked and you are simply repelling an attack, there are four months of each year that Allah is keen on having no violence. Human beings are supposed to commit themselves to the principle of no violence. Not only that, in Islamic morality, there is a great deal, and unfortunately modern Muslims are completely oblivious to this, about all the things. So during these four months, a sin compounds. So if you commit an act of violence out of anger, the, the sin during these four months is much worse than outside these four months. If you lose your temper in these four months, it's much worse than losing your temper outside these months. If, in fact, even hunting should be kept to a minimum, only to bare necessities during these four months. There are a whole world that has been completely forgotten in modern Islam. And these months are Dhul Hijjah, Dhul Qada, and Rajab and Muharram, right? So these are the four months. What was the problem that the Quran is talking about? The problem was that none Arabs, non-Muslim Arabs, found the four sacred months which existed. It, it reportedly all the way back to the Prophet Ibrahim, that the, the first to say that these four months are sacred was the Prophet Ibrahim. Some say Ismail, Allahu Alam, but anyway. That, so Arabs were had inherited this doctrine and, and were aware of it. And they, they saw, you know, attributed to the Prophet Ismail, although some Islamic sources, as I said, say it's the Prophet Ibrahim that, anyway. But Arabs found observing these four months to be a great hardship. 
And so Anasi, what they did was they, when they found it inconvenient, they would violate the the four sacred months and replace a month instead of a month. So I need to wage a raid against X tribe in the months of Rajab. So I would go ahead, wage the raid in the month of Rajab against that tribe and put instead of Rajab another month, which I would declare to be the sacred month. So I would do the switching. And it is, you must pause and wonder and think, okay, why is it that Allah comes at this point when we know that paganism is on the wane? Paganism is going to become something history soon. Why does Allah go to this lens to point out in Surah At-Tawbah that the practice of a nasib, this manipulation of the month, was so despicable. And other than the obvious point that Allah wants us to observe these sanctified months and to in fact follow that rule, but the principle that again out the same logic that may that that was behind those people who said you're going to ban non-muslims from coming to the haram what are we going to do about our business the principle of forcing religious doctrine and notice here sacred space that's a haram sacred time that's the months and the sacred months so the principle that you are going to force sacred space and sacred time, sacred law, to yield to the practicalities and pragmatisms of your needs as human beings or what you perceive to be your needs is the beginning of the path to nifaq, which Surah At-Tawbah is, is, will, will greatly explore is that you want to know how people become hypocrites? Do you want to know how you start worshiping your monks and your rabbis? Do you want to know how your rabbis and your monks become hypocrites and start hoarding wealth and instead of attracting people to God, actually scaring people away from God? It all starts with this. That you start saying, Come on, let's be practical. We, 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 you know, we can't have, it's not just about principles. Let's cut corners with sacred space and sacred time, which is the embodiment of sacred law, in order to achieve these pragmatic ends. And as we will see, Surah At-Tawbah will connect all of this to tell us this is the heart of the phenomena that Surah At-Tawbah, in fact, you will see the balance of Surah At-Tawbah focuses like laser, laser focus on hypocrisy as, it, as 
as the problem to warn the Muslim Ummah about in these final critical, especially that all the verses on hypocrisy are revealed now by the overwhelming reports in the in the Hajjat Abu Bakr, the Hajjah that Abu Bakr leads, in other words, the ninth Hijrah. So we're, we're coming down to the very final messages. In fact, I mean, other than Surah Al-Ma'idah, this is, this is it, which Ma'idah follows soon after the Tawbah. But it is now one of the things that, that actually, I mean, there are in Islamic, I mean, you often read in Islamic sources that they, they, they tell you that the, that the, that the, 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 the month, Arabic months with their names, Muharram, Rajab, are, is what God decreed. And that, of course, for the people writing these texts, it was unimaginable that there will come a day where Muslims no longer talk about Muharram or Rajab or you know Zulhijjah, and they will talk about December, January, February, or whatever. Um, so I, I don't think they even imagined it. But who in today's Islam even, I mean, again, I go back to all these young either young promising people or young punks, depending, depending on who you're talking about, that keep, would love to talk about decolonization, decolonization. If you don't reclaim your history, you don't reclaim your sense of space, you don't reclaim your sense of time, there is no decolonization. All decolonization begins with these basic, why is it that the Zionist movement anchored itself on reclaiming as as fantastical as this history is, but creating a history that Zionism can can you know hold as an idol that they that a, a history that all Zionists believe in and consider beyond reproach. They literally invented it. Not only that, but also reclaiming a language that was dead, the Hebrew language. Yiddish was still a living language by the time Zionism rolled around, but Hebrew was dead. And sheer commitment and dedication is what made it a dead language living again. Meanwhile, as as Hebrew became a living language, Arabs couldn't abandon Arabic fast enough. It, it is mind-boggling. I mean, it is just it, it. This whole thing. I mean, I actually get extremely nervous when I remember what Allah is saying about sacred time, because Allah. You know, the affairs of this world, you lose sight of what Islamic monster is. You're, all, you're dealing with the secular all the time. You, you know, Rajab could come and go, and you don't even notice it's Rajab. 
you know, is Allah going to forgive? You know, you just pray, Allah, please forgive me. It, it's just... Okay, I think this is a good point to stop. Okay, alhamdulillah. We, we stopped at what? Uh, 37? We, we just finished 36. No, no, we finished 36. 36 and 37. So we started with what? We, we, we started 38. Next time? Well, we started this time? Oh, this time we started at 27. 27. So we did t 10 ayat? Okay. May Allah help us. Alhamdulillah, I'm so proud of you that you've truly internalized the idea of not rushing. <laughs> Alhamdulillah. Um, so, just um, to share some incredible highlights. Um, not in any particular order, but the idea of um, the need to attract versus repel people to God. Um, I mean, these are the things that are so powerful for, for our time and that we have so much to reflect upon because I know that when you just see what Muslims are doing, you know, whether it's on social media or in day to day, whatever, there's so much that unfortunately feels like um, tends to repel rather than attract. And um, even, you know, I continue still to get a lot of messages or, you know, comments that I see about this whole hijab issue. And, you know, um, it's just really disappointing. But anyway, th that that is such a, a central idea that we can really develop. It's like, how, how do we attract people as ambassadors, you know, to God? Um, and then the principle, which again, you just reinforced it, the idea of um, Trump, that principle has to trump pragmatism despite financial um, losses. And that again, is just, you know, everywhere around us. Um, and the importance of the whole discussion about, you know, jizya and um, the innovations that came with, you know, um, with that whole, um, all the innovations that you described um, and I really think that what you pointed out at, you know when you summarized it for us was really powerful that this is about understanding the ideals even though human beings you know or Muslims didn't necessarily live up to the ideals in many cases um, with so many of so much of what you teach us in terms of the principles it is just understanding you know where we were, what Islam brought, um, and even just the importance of writing our own history and understanding like what innovations came with our tradition. Um, and you know, with the whole idea of the, the jizya and the dimitude as you know, I was seeing um, at the break, I was explaining to some people that these are concepts that Islamophobes really take and throw out as reasons for why Islam is so evil. Like I know that you get written up all the time by Daniel Pipes, Campus Watch, and the whole network of Islamophobia. And, you know, for all the things that you say that are enlightened, that they try to attack you on, they come back and they always throw this concept of jizya and dimitude right back at you. And, um, you know, so this learning that you even gave us is so important because the, the tools, the language, the understanding, this is how we fight back. And we, you know, go back and say, listen, you have no idea, you know, the, the actual history, the actual innovation, you know, the, the, that this was non-coercive, that this is something, you know, there, there are all of these things that were completely new to that time period. 
but sadly, we as Muslims don't even know that ourselves. And so this is a really important first step to, to being able to fight back on that point. Um, the idea of spending and being an example, again, just underscoring being an example, um, demonstrating what we should ourselves do to attract um, people to God. Um, and that in general, we must be at the cutting edge of virtue and morality, which is obviously the constant theme. Um, and the point you made about, you know, not being intellectually lazy, but taking things as they are and rising to the occasion. Because so many Muslims have this idea, oh, we have to go back in time, we have to go back to the golden age. No, we have to take things as they are. We have to actually be, you know, a, a, on the forefront with, by example, by persuasion, not by coercion. Um, and then just, of course, the, the, the really important verses about... Um, the rabbis and monks and taking them like worshiping rabbis and monks what that means for our time or you know revering our um fukaha that are in service to those in political power um so much opportunity obviously for us to rebel against that um because if we don't it is like extinguishing the light of god um you know replacing your own personal relationship with god with this like reverence of political you know popular sheikhs who are in service of power and then there's just the fundamental point of reclaiming sacred space and sacred time um, and not sacrificing those things for pragmatic ends um, and you know even the whole decolonialization movement you know has to begin with reclaiming the sacred um, and just important example of how Zionists really were able to sacrifice and even invent their own history um, and created this this sacredness that they fought for it's such an example for us as Muslims moving forward and so much of it comes down to um, you know trusting in Allah like letting go of that need to control the idea of I have to control the pragmatism I have to control this it's okay to sacrifice what Allah is calling us to do because come on you know what's the big deal we obviously recognize this makes absolutely no sense if we don't do this um, so much of that is really just an indicator of how strong our trust is in God and you know the strength of our faith um, so alhamdulillah thank you so much as always for allowing us to understand um, what I think is passed over I mean for Surat Alba and um, and also to address a lot of these verses that people think they understand in one way but when we actually delve into the detail um, there's so much more um, that really is important for our, for our time and our world so thank you everybody um, we really appreciate you being with us have a wonderful week and inshallah we will see you next week Assalamu alaikum.